Well, good morning and uh, happy Tuesday of Holy Week to you. It's good to be here with you today again for another devotional. Uh, you know, I got to say, uh, I do. There are times where I really, really love the church calendar. And weeks like this are especially true. Um, what the church calendar does for you, you know, when we're in a pl we're in a time called Holy Week, is really, I think it helps you to, it helps to sort of reset your mind to focus on eternal things rather than temporal sort of uh, impermanent things like we're going through now. And so the fact is, at this point in, in time, on the one hand, as we're living in the moment, um, you know, you're, you're sort of tempted to just kind of focus on everything that's happening right now. And, uh, you know, we keep on hearing uh, on the news that, you know, the peak is coming and uh, all of these sort of different events. You know, you hear about the British prime minister uh, entering intensive care and all sorts of things that can sort of uh, consume you. And what what the church calendar does, what Holy Week does is suddenly bring you back to the reality that, no, there's a there's a bigger plan going on. There's a bigger story happening that we are in the midst of that actually takes precedence, is uh, far more important, in fact, than anything that's going on around us. And so I'm thankful that we're in Holy Week, that we're preparing for, uh, at least at the churches I serve, uh, services for Maundy Thursday and for Good Friday and for Easter. Uh, these monumental days that we have been celebrated from uh, the beginning of the church that we still celebrate today, 2,000 years later, with much joy and anticipation and hope as we remember what the Christian faith is all about. So with that said, um, I wanted to go over some very famous words of Jesus from the cross. Uh, I don't know that they are his most famous. There's so many of them that are quite well known, but these are certainly some of the most comforting. Of course, it is now the final day of Jesus's earthly life. Uh, for the last three years, he has gone around healing the sick and banishing demons and feeding the poor and preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God with his coming. He's shown all people around him that there is truly something unique and something special about him. He has displayed powers that only God himself possesses. He has led and equipped a group of disciples to take his message far beyond the confines of ancient Palestine. Just a few short days before this day that we've arrived at, that we observed last Sunday, it appears that Jesus might be the long-awaited Jewish king that so many had been hoping for. Just a few days before this, there was a sense that he was going to ride into Jerusalem, take the throne from Rome, and rule the world with a properly iron fist of justice. But now, now it appears that those dreams are dashed. Now he has gone through mock trials and has been condemned, declared guilty of blasphemy and insurrection. He has been spat on, slapped, beaten, whipped to a bloody pulp. Instead of a crown of gold and jewels, he dons a crown of thorns. Instead of a, a robe of royalty, he is wrapped in a robe of shame. And instead of people bowing in adoration at his feet, now they are bowing in mockery and jest. They, and for that matter, we, all of humanity, 
really had not understood that his kingdom was not of this world. They had not understood that his kingdom was a kingdom of grace and mercy for sinners. They had not understood that his goal for his coming was actually coming to fruition on the cross that they crucified him on. They had not understood that this cross was actually part of the divine plan. And yet, when Jesus is finally nailed to that cross in the presence of real criminals, we do not hear him shout, Father, repay their evil deeds. Get them. Send your holy angels. We don't declare him with anger, uh, yell out at the sinners nailed next to him or to those who are actually pounding the nails in. Rather, we hear the wonderfully surprising words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And those words apply just as much to us as they did to the crowd that day. And so why does Jesus ask for God to forgive his enemies? Well, first of all, it might seem obvious, but because he can. In other words, he has the authority to do so. And this is something maybe we just don't think about, but because he is, in fact, God's son, he can ask this. Now, sure, many people can request such a thing from God, but only Jesus can ask this and guarantee it will happen. It is this sort of declaration that actually led Jesus to this cross. If you might remember earlier in Luke's gospel, before this is recorded for us, we hear of a time when some men brought to Jesus a crippled man in need of healing. But before the healing takes place, something strange happens. Jesus looks at the man and says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, this, of course, really scandalizes the religious leaders. And by the way, rightly so, if Jesus isn't divine. They say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? If Jesus isn't God, well, their question is, in fact, a good one. This all reminds me of C.S. Lewis commenting on this very passage and talking about Jesus declaring forgiveness. He says, quote, Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all for understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a, of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money. Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. That's a very C.S. Lewisian line. Yet this is what Jesus did, he continues. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their, whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Wonderful quote, end quote from C.S. Lewis about why Jesus can indeed forgive. That's one of the reasons Jesus asked forgiveness for sinners, because he simply has the authority to do so in a way that no one else does. 
The second reason for why Jesus wants sinners forgiven is because, well, he is in fact paying for them. He doesn't pray for our forgiveness just because he feels like it. He doesn't pray for a sinner's forgiveness because he sort of merely winks at it as if it's no biggie. No, the only reason Jesus can plead forgiveness for us is because, in fact, at that moment, he is paying the price our sins, the debt our sins have incurred against the Holy God. He is saying, essentially, in his plea for forgiveness to us, Father, forgive them because I have lived the perfect life in every way. I have not sinned even once in thought, word, or deed. Father, I am the spotless lamb. Take me instead of them. In his plea for forgiveness, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them because I am going to take the hell that they deserve right now. I am going to be separated from you. I am going through all this pain and agony and isolation. So they don't have to. That's what Jesus does when he says, Father, forgive them. He is standing in the gap for us, taking the punishment for us, and by doing so, grants us new life and freedom. And still today, remember, the Bible says even now, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. And so even still, right this moment, Christ stands in the gap for you, covering you in his righteousness. And the third reason, briefly, that Jesus wants forgiveness for you and for me, for his enemies even that day, is because he loves us. I know uh, this can almost be said in such a way that it becomes, you know, cliche. You know, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But it's great news, and it should never get old to us. We who by our sins spat on him, mocked him, whipped him, beat him, crucified him. He loves us. He even loved his enemies, the Pharisees who were doing this to him. He really, God really, when he says he loves the world, folks, he actually means it. Romans 5 tells us, God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You who struggle with that secret addiction, Jesus loves you and says, Father, forgive him. You who struggle with gossip and slander, Jesus loves you and says, Father, forgive her. You who have failed raising your kids from time to time or many times, Jesus loves you and says, Father, forgive them. You who have failed in your marriage, Jesus loves you and says, Father, forgive them. You who come this morning dragging in the unbearable weight of your sin, Jesus says, I love you. Let me take that from you. I forgive you. It's mine now. Go in peace and freedom. One of my favorite illustrations of this sort of love comes from Dr. Richard Selzer. I've shared this, this illustration many times, but it's just such a wonderful picture to me, such a beautiful picture of the kind of thing that happens at the cross. In his book, Mortal Lessons, he describes a scene in a hospital room after he has performed surgery on a young woman's face. Quote, I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth has been severed. 
she will be that way from now on. I, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to be in a world all their own in the evening lamplight, isolated from me and, and private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this, this wry mouth I have made gaze at and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. Stelzer writes, all at once I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the divine. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her somehow that their kiss still works. Friends, this is what Jesus does for us. God loves you and I so much that he comes to us. Though without sin himself, in the crucifixion, Jesus becomes sin for us. He twists his mouth for us, as it were, to show the world that indeed the kiss between heaven and earth can still somehow work. He says, Father, forgive them. And the good news for you and I is the Father responds, I have. That's our devotion for this Tuesday. May you be blessed this week. May you have a wonderful Holy Week. God bless.